Yeah, the analogy I like to use is this is like someone building a skyscraper, you know, 100 stories tall or whatever. And then 100 years or 200 years later, you know, he gets together. I mean, assuming he lived that long, he gets together with his architect and says, you know, do you think we could we should give serious consideration to throwing a foundation under this thing? Well, you know? I mean, for all that are concerned, because there might there might be some that are concerned. There might be some we who don't are, are a little bit worried this thing is on sand. Welcome to another exciting episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and this is a service, a product, a project of the Coming Home Network, and uh, Ken and I both came from various evangelical roots. We're looking at some of the questions that led us to the Catholic Church, and if you are in that situation or have lots of questions about that situation, please come visit us at chnetwork.org. Subscribe to this channel if you like what you're hearing, and uh, we would love to hear from you. Ken, how are you? I am doing well. Good to see you, Matt. Good to see you as well. So we're in Sola Scriptura still. We keep on going down this path because it's such an important path. Uh, Tell us sort of how and why we've been approaching this question of Sola Scriptura. First of all, the Coming Home Network is is about stories. It's about people telling their stories. And so I do want to make clear that the aim of our show here is, you know, at least in my mind, I'm not... uh, I'm not thinking of myself as providing proofs that Catholicism is true or something like that, mathematically sound, you know, necessary demonstrations or anything like that. But but really, what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to help our Christian brothers and sisters from various uh, backgrounds to understand um, the reasons that a Protestant might have for becoming Catholic. As you mentioned, I was an evangelical, uh, reformed more, but an evangelical Baptist pastor in the Calvinist tradition. So I was, a, at least in my mind, I was a logic-chopping machine. You were a l- low-life worm of an Arminian. Isn't that true? Well, it all depends on if I backslidden <laughs> that day. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're the once saved, always saved variety. I'm from the Wesleyan holiness where, you know, repent and then repent again, you know, lots of revival services and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, the thing is, I agree with you now, but but anyway, both and of I us And I agree became... more with you now than I did back then, so... Okay. It's, it's well, a strange well, both thing of us became Catholic. Catholic for one reason or another. Both of us ended up Catholic. And what we're talking about on this show is why. Now, for some weeks now, as you mentioned, we've been looking at the foundation upon which Protestantism as a worldview, as a system of thought, is built. And that is sola scriptura. And I want to begin by just sort of recapping uh, definitionally what is involved in a commitment to sola scriptura. Because it's... It, it's often summarized uh, simply as a belief that the inspired Word of God is supposed to function in our lives as the, quote, sole infallible rule of faith and practice. But I want to point out that actually sola scriptura includes a handful of related ideas and commitments. Yeah, things that sort of logically follow if you're going to embrace something like sola scriptura. Yeah, that's right. For instance, sola scriptura involves a commitment to the idea that scripture is materially, materially sufficient, which means simply that everything God wanted us to know in terms of divine revelation, God has included in the pages of the Bible, either explicitly or implicitly. 
Sola Scriptura also includes a commitment to the idea that the script that Scripture is formally sufficient, and what that simply means is it's materially sufficient. All the material is there. It's formally sufficient, meaning all the material is there and it's clear enough. That is, it's laid out clearly enough that no binding authoritative uh, source like a church or a tradition or a council is needed in order for Christians to read the you Bible just and to know get what it's it saying. Right out of the drawer at the hotel room. You know, reach into the, the drawer and just get the Gideons yeah. and read it for yourself. And of course, the Word of God is clear. Perspicacious, some yeah. would say. That's one of the words that kind of is used. It's, yeah, that's it's one of the things in Calvin, and, right? That's one of the things that Calvin and them were, were very big on, that it, was, that it was clear. So a commitment to sola scriptura includes a commitment to the idea that the material is all there, it's materially sufficient, um, that it's clear enough, it's formally sufficient, so that no binding authority is needed on earth and no binding authority exists on earth. And then another thing follows from that, and I think it follows inescapably, and Protestants would admit this, it follows from the idea that we don't have anyone on earth to tell us what Scripture means, that is, to tell us authoritatively in a way that would bind us, and no authority like that exists on earth, it follows then that every single Christian has the right to study the Bible and to decide for himself whether he should be a Calvinist or an Arminian, um, whether the Baptist view of baptism is the true view or the Church of Christ view or the Presbyterian view or the Lutheran view, and they're all different. Yeah. Everyone has their own right to decide these matters. And Ken, the way that I would have put it, instead of saying everyone has their right to decide what is the truth, uh, you know, whether the uh, you know whether to be Arminian or Calvinist, the way I would have at least internally thought of it is, I get to from these clear scriptures be able to tell from looking whether or not the Arminians are on or off the right track according to the scriptures. So at the end of the day, I am Pope and Council who determines whether or not any of the 15 churches in my small town have it right or wrong. I can point to the scriptures and say, well, you guys are obviously off. Yeah, in fact, the words you just used reflect something that Martin Luther said at the time. I mean, Luther said it like this. He said, in these matters of faith, to be sure, each Christian is for himself, Pope, and Church. Now, Protestants commonly refer to this as the right of private judgment. And it's understood as following pretty much inescapably from the logic of Sola Scriptura. Calvin put it this way, and I, I've read this before, but it's good to hear it. He was expressing the same commitment when he said, quote, We hold that the word of God alone lies beyond the sphere of our judgment. Fathers and councils are of authority only insofar as they are in accord with the rule of the word. In other words, if I decide that what the fathers and the councils have said accords with what I have decided the rule of the word to be saying, then I will hold them as authoritative. But if I decide that what they have said does not accord, then so much the worse for them. So all that to say this, bringing all these aspects together, sola scriptura means a commitment to the material sufficiency of scripture, the formal sufficiency of scripture, the fact that the Bible is our sole infallible rule, and the idea that every Christian has the right, ultimately, to figure it out for himself, for herself. And the way that our Protestant scholar friends Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie put it in their book that we've been looking at, they summarize it this way, the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is all that is necessary for faith, that is doctrine, and practice, that is morals. And with this, okay, so we 
just took several weeks looking at whether Sola Scriptura is scriptural, and that's one of the questions that you might have about Sola Scriptura. That was not so much the path that I was on. Um, the other kind of two sections we're going to handle it in were more of the path that I was on, and that was the question of the historicity or the logic of Sola Scriptura. It wasn't necessarily, for me, important to prove from the pages of Scripture whether the Scriptures taught Sola Scriptura. I just wanted to know if that's how people lived in the early Church. Yeah, you're a more practical kind of guy, right? Well, yeah. that, yeah, you that depends see, on that who you ask. Li- yeah. <laughs> not your wife, I Probably take it. not. Yeah. Well, Matt, in, in terms of my own conversion to the Catholic faith— um, there is no doubt that the issue of Sola Scriptura was one of the key issues, one of the most important issue. And it was it was coming to see that what was really the foundation of my worldview as a Protestant Christian, or coming to believe that it was a cracked foundation, that it wasn't sound, that the that Sola Scriptura was not scriptural, really. It wasn't taught in the Bible, that it wasn't historical. It, it was not the faith of the early church. In fact, it wasn't the faith of the church at all up until the time of the Reformation. That Sola Scriptura doesn't even work, and we're going to come to that too. And then finally, one that I know you love to think about, uh, that, that Sola Scriptura wasn't even logical. And we're going to come to all of these um, in good time, but one step at a time. And so, yes, we've been looking at the question of whether Sola Scriptura was biblical or scriptural. And today we're going to move into the second um, issue, or the second question, is Sola Scriptura historical? And that really jumps into where we left off with the is Sola Scriptura a scriptural question uh, was by looking at those that first generation of Christians, the ones that the apostles were training for service. I mean, if you want to look at the history of how Sola Scriptura was handled, I mean, that's where you have to start. Yeah, you have to begin at the beginning. And so just so that it's clear, since we've looked at what Sola Scriptura entails, the question we're going to be asking is this. Um, the early church, those uh, those believers that the apostles had left, uh, you know, um, after them, the early decades, the early centuries of the church, were they committed to material sufficiency of Scripture, formal sufficiency, the right of private judgment? Were they committed to sola scriptura? That's a question we're asking. Now, my own story um, is this: before I began to even read the early fathers at least on this question, before I dove into, you know, uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, before I poured myself into these texts to find out what they said about Sola Scriptura, um, I had made some observations, Matt, that I would have to say was already uh, bending my brain, if you will, bending my mind in the direction of thinking that the early church could not have had Sola Scriptura in their minds, that that could not have been the mindset of the early church. And that's what we're going to look at today, um, three observations or three facts that um, that came to me as um, making it difficult for me to believe that the mindset of the early church would have been the Sola Scriptura mindset. And the first one we're going to look at ties us back into the biblical material that we've been studying. And that's that, again, was, you know, what did authority look like in the Scriptures themselves? Because that's the foundation for everything that anybody's going to do once Peter and Andrew and James and John are all dead. You and I have already seen, uh, you know, in in past lessons, we've already noted that while the apostles were still alive, definitely sola scriptura was not being practiced. Authority within the church at that time, and by that, 
I mean binding authority, okay? I mean infallible authority. I mean authority that someone has to bend to. I don't mean the authority that a pastor might have in the in a Protestant church or even a or even a confession to set might the budget, have. right? You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about binding authority during the time in which the apostles was alive were alive. You and I have already seen that it was found in Scripture, the the Old Testament writings and the New Testament as it was being written. But it was also found in the oral tradition of the apostles. That is the the teaching of the apostles that was not not in terms of what they wrote, but in terms of what they gave to the churches, and then also the magisterium, that is the apostles and the other leadership of the church when they met in council to decide or to define a matter of faith and practice. And of course, I'm thinking here about Acts 15, where they said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us in a letter that they sent out to all the churches. So. During the time of the apostles, we see scripture, we see the oral teaching or the tradition, and we see magisterium. Now, given this, it seemed reasonable to me that if the apostles really had it in their minds that once they had died and moved on to be with the Lord, that all of this would radically change. And instead of there being scripture, tradition, and magisterium, we would have scripture alone, (laughs) and the church would be standing on the foundation of Sola Scriptura, it seemed reasonable to me that they would have been preparing their churches for such a a massive tectonic shift. It seemed to me that they would have said something, and as you and I have seen in our study so far, they don't. They just don't say anything about that. They don't act like they're preparing the church for such an eventuality. In fact, the apostles appear to have believed that the substance of their teaching, the basic thrust of their doctrine, would be preserved by the Holy Spirit in the church through their successors. You remember Paul on that account in his writing to Timothy? This is one of the big ones. Here's Paul. He's preparing to leave the world. He wants to ensure that his teaching will, will survive him. And he writes to Timothy, his number one son in, son in the faith, his successor in his ministry, and instead of talking about his writings, he basically says to Timothy, Timothy, this body of doctrine that I've, that I've given to you, this pattern of sound words, these, these things you've heard me teach in the presence of all kinds of people, take this body of doctrine, Timothy, guard it by the Holy Spirit, and pass it on to other faithful men. The assumption is those that you will be ordaining to succeed you in the ministry. And the assumption again is, or the presumption is that they will guard it by the Holy Spirit and they will pass it on. In, in other words, I could see that this was the mindset of the apostles. This yeah. is what this is how they thought. And because of that, the first reason that I had for thinking that Sola Scriptura would not have been the mindset of the early Christians is simply that I could not find a hint in the New Testament, in the writings of the apostles, that it ought to be. Yeah, and again, this comes back to just sort of a common sense of how ideas get passed forward in general. Um, so I was watching, and I think I've sent you the clip of this, I was watching The Mandalorian, uh, which is a, a series on Disney+. Plus. Well, since uh, I think because of the success of it, they decided to do a whole series on the making of The Mandalorian. There's probably going to be even more episodes. But at the end of the last episode I watched, you had these people who were creating this thing that's supposed to exist in the Star Wars universe. And one of the creators, Dave Filoni, said something very fascinating. He said, 
you know, everybody loves Star Wars, and you could read about Star Wars, and you can watch Star Wars. But there's an actual living, literal history of Star Wars that you can go back and find out how to do this thing because you can talk to somebody within the company who was passed this information by someone who was passed this information by someone who originally worked on the first Star Wars, A New Hope. And I thought, that's common sense. You're telling me that the apostles' love for Christ and the Gospels was less faithful and less true and less vigilant than the guys who are trying to make a cool Star Wars update? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a great illustration. And I so, and the answer I, is I doubt it. No, of course not. I mean, we love Star Wars, right? But yeah, it's, but this is people are dying for this stuff. People are being martyred for this stuff. And this gets into the whole thing about how that uh, how how oral tradition was treated within the Jewish people too, and how important it was, unlike the way it is today. And we're going to go into this more deeply next week when we look at scripture, tradition, and magisterium in the early fathers. But you're making a great point. Okay, so the and what I'm saying here to summarize so far is simply that the first reason that I had for thinking that the mindset of the early Christians in the decades, in the centuries after the apostles, would not have been sola scriptura, is simply that there's nothing in the New Testament that would make them think it ought to be. There was nothing in the New Testament in the, in the teaching of the apostles, in the preparation of the churches by the apostles, that would say to them, hey, we're getting ready to die, and when we die, it's going to be sola scriptura. No more of this, you know, uh, oral teaching that we've given you, and no more magisterium. Okay, but there's something else that bothered me, and, and this is the second one. There's something else that just didn't fit in my mind and it's this, if the early church was committed to sola scriptura, why did they take so long to define formally the canon of scripture? I mean, this is an interesting question. If they were committed to sola scriptura, if this was the way they thought, why did it take them as long as it did to formally define the canon of scripture? Now, I tried to put myself into the shoes of, of the earliest disciples of the apostles, the earliest bishops. And all I can say to you, Matt, is if I had been a bishop in the early church and I was committed to the idea that once the apostles left this earth, it was going to be scripture and scripture alone, you know, the number one goal in my life would have been finding all of the writings of the apostles, bringing them all together into a volume, making tons and tons of copies, making sure that all of the churches had them. This would have been the number one thing. In fact, if Peter ever showed up at my house and he had a runny nose, I would have been thinking, sola scriptura, sola scriptura. When Let's it came get time everything for me, we can out of this guy in writing before he passes away from this runny nose, yes. Yeah, yeah, it'd be Peter, sit down right now and summarize in the clearest of language what you teach about God, Christ, salvation, the church, all of it. In fact, by the time I was attending my very first apostolic funeral, the burning, uh, the burning, uh, thing of my entire life would have been the canon of Scripture. And yet, this is not what happened historically. And so, I, I had to ask the question, why? Now, at the time, I was reading a number of books on the formation of the Old and New Testaments, because the canon issue, as we're going to see, was an important issue. And I remember reading Protestant scholar Bruce Metzger's book on the New Testament canon. That's kind of the one everybody reads. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the well-respected Protestant scholars. And in this book, he was pointing out that in the early centuries of Christian history, approximately, this was, this was his number, approximately 25% of the, 
of our present New Testament, the 27 books in our New Testament, about 25% of it was disputed within the church to one degree or another in these early centuries. He's talking about the book of Revelation, the epistle to the Hebrews, 2 Peter, Jude, I think James was included, a couple of more. And those continued to be disputed by the people in the Reformation who espoused sola scriptura. Yeah, they, right. Luther specifically. Yeah. Yeah, and his epistle of straw, James, and all that. Sure. Okay, well, this is something, though, that most Christians, Catholic or Protestant, just don't know that in the early centuries, it wasn't entirely settled. Now, another thing that most Christians don't know is that the canon was not formally defined until a series of councils that met in the, get this, late 4th century A.D. We're talking about the council in Rome in 382, Hippo in 393, Carthage in 397, and 419 A.D. And before this, there were some lists. Athanasius in the 4th century, the early 4th century, had drawn up a list. Jerome had drawn up a list. There was agreement generally in many, many places, but the point is, no formal list that would apply churchwide had been drawn up and insisted upon until these councils. It wasn't determined until the late 4th century. And then it gets worse, because even then, it was to a significant degree in response to, to heresies that had arisen within the church that basically required a formal definition of Scripture to be made. And what I mean by that is that if these heresies hadn't, hadn't have arisen, they might have taken even longer. But instead, you've got the, just to, to quickly uh, cap it up, there were the Marcionites who um, basically attacked the integrity of Scripture, trimming away books that they didn't believe were any good, they were too Jewish. I mean, I think that Marcion, in the end, he got rid of the Old Testament, threw that in the trash. He kept Paul's letters and, he, and, and part of Luke, but everything else was too Jewish for him, so he threw it out. You had the Gnostics at the time who were playing around with the meaning of the New Testament with all their, you know, New Agey kind of interpretations of the Bible. And then you had the Montanists who attacked the extent of the canon because they believed that they were receiving fresh revelation from God, which at least in theory could have been stapled in, you know, could have been written down and stapled in between Galatians and Ephesians. So you have the Marcionites on the one hand, you have the Gnostics on the other, and you have the Montanists on the third hand, I guess, rising up. And this is requiring the church to meet and to decide, no, no, which books are, are to be received as inspired and infallible. And this is what they had to do. Now, here's my point. Taking this long to formally define the contents of the canon of inspired scripture, this is at least understandable on the Catholic worldview. It's understandable on the premise, the Catholic premise, because the church wasn't looking um, to Scripture as the end-all and be-all of the church's ability to know what the apostles had taught. Like your illustration with Star Wars, you know, we're going to see this in spades next week, but the church believed that they could know what the apostles taught because it had been handed down within the church and been retained. So this this um, issue of taking this long, it it fits. It's, it's understandable within, within the Catholic worldview, but I didn't find this to be understandable at all. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever on the premise that the early church was a church totally committed to the Bible, Bible only, chapter and verse. And 
again, I don't want to get too far into the is Holy Scripture a logical part of this, but a couple of things. Um, one is that we already know that a council to define the New Testament would have authority from a Catholic side because we understand that councils, according to Scripture, have authority. So for even to accept the New Testament canon, you are implicitly accepting the concept that a council that took place af- after the scriptures themselves mm-hmm. should be accepted as authoritative. So you've got that. But what, so that's that's a council, but what is being brought to the table at the council to be discussed when it comes to figuring out what books are actually going to be in the Bible? Well, that's the tradition. So you've got yeah. the apostolic authority looking at the tradition and saying, this is scripture. I mean, this is, it's it's wild. But, but the other thing yeah. about this, Ken, when you had your 66-book Bible, you know, which is, you know, the, the Protestant Bible, Catholic Bibles have 73, um, you would have referred to that period between Malachi and Matthew chapter 1 as the intertestamental period, but we would have also, in my groups that I ran around with, mm-hmm. referred to that as the 400 years of silence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In order... <laughs> In order to buy into this whole thing of sola scriptura and being okay with the church getting it right on the New Testament, you also have to kind of buy into some sort of 400 years of silence between the apostolic age and the establishment of the canon of the New Testament, where there is no authority because there is no canon of scripture. So what's happening for 380 years you know, I suppose people are patching together New Testament books as best they can. and all. That's exactly what's being raised here, though, is simply that if they had been committed, really committed to Sola Scriptura from the beginning, I, I think we would find this to be the first thing that all the bishops were committed to. I mean, bishops we, we, take we, a while to decide things, but 400 years is a bit yeah. much. Now, I want to expand on this a, a little bit, okay, by giving an illustration in a way. Okay, in his book, Answers to Catholic Claims... Um, Protestant apologist James White, he describes the church's motivation, okay, the church's motivation for finally defining the canon of Scripture in the 4th century, late 4th century, without realizing the implications it has for his belief that the early church was a church committed to sola scriptura. Let me read this and kind of like uh, uh, vamp on it a little bit. This, This is what he says. In the early church, or in the early history of the church, There were events and people that gave impetus and rise to the formalization of the canon list. And he's talking, he's referring here to the the heresies that that I mentioned. The Montanists and the Gnostics and the Marcionites, yeah. Yeah, okay. So there were these events and people that gave impetus. Okay, then he says this. These things could be viewed as being used by God to prompt his people, the church, to give serious consideration to providing to all concerned— a listing of the books which the church, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, had received as authoritative. Now, I read this, Matt, and I think, I, I read this carefully, and I think, what? I mean, think about that. Here's a church, in, in James White's mind, completely committed from the beginning to sola scriptura, and they need the Holy Spirit to come along a couple of hundred years later and prompt them to begin thinking about formalizing a canon list. And the way he says it here prompt the people of God to give serious consideration. You know, like here we are sitting around two, three hundred years after the apostles and, hmm, should we give, you know, let's give serious consideration to a, 
you know, putting together a list. And, and the way he says it, look, to give serious consideration to providing to all concerned. What? There were a bunch who weren't concerned? I mean, a bunch of people who believed in Sola Scriptura, and they weren't even concerned whether they had all the books or not? The no Harry Potter wording, fan would stand for that. Right? Yeah, the, all of the wording here, when you think about it, he and he's describing it in such casual fashion as though the scenario that he's painting makes one bit of sense, and yet it doesn't make any sense at all. Again, if I were a bishop in the early church, and if I was thinking in terms of Sola Scriptura, there was nothing I would have been more concerned about than getting all the bishops together and saying, we have got to decide right now, is Barnabas in or out? Is the Didache in or out? You know, the Shepherd of Hermas, which books were written by apostles, you know, which ones are to be are to be treated as inspired and infallible and received into the canon. This would have been the first order of business. And so for James White to describe it, I mean, you know, he's just being honest and sincere, but describe it as, hey, you know, uh, these heresies arose in the second, third, and fourth centuries, and God used this to prompt the church to, you know, begin thinking about, you know, giving serious consideration to this. I mean, in, in case there were any out there that were concerned and felt that they needed a list, do you see where I'm going with this thing? This would be it, like... You, you know, waiting 400 years to say, you know what, we should really get around to writing up the Bill of Rights, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've got this constitution or an illustration. I, I mean, like everybody sort of knows what we're supposed to be doing, but we should probably yeah. put this on paper. Yeah, the analogy I like to use is this is like someone building a skyscraper, you know, 100 stories tall or whatever. And then 100 years or 200 years later, you know, he gets together, I mean, assuming he lived that long, he gets together with his architect and says, you know, do you think we could, we should give serious consideration to throwing a foundation under this thing? Well, <laughs> you know? I mean, for all that are concerned, because there might, there might be some that are concerned. There might be some who are, might, a are a little bit worried this thing is on sand. But the other thing, too, yeah. that this, this brings up, and this is something we'll discuss later, you know, some people will say, well, there are, there are these innovations that happen um, at, at these councils where the church just introduces some, like, alien thing to the church, and so we can only trace it back as far as this thing. Um, you know, Gnostics and Montanists and Marcionists, oh my, I feel like I should sing that every time I say it, Gnostics and Martian. Um But... In fact, the church does those things because something that everybody is holding is being questioned. It's the same reason that you have, like, the no diving signs at the end of the pool that's shallow. Because somebody tried to do it, and they're like, you know what, if people are going to be so dumb that we have to spell it out, let's just spell it out. No diving yeah. in the two-foot pool. Exactly. So just think about these two so far, then. I, you know, I'm just saying that that, number one— it seemed to me that if the apostles were thinking that Sola Scriptura was going to become the rule as soon as they had left this world, they would have done something about it. They would have said something about it. They We would see them preparing the church, and yet they don't. And then secondly, if the early church then, after the apostles, was thinking in terms of Sola Scriptura, if that was their mindset, then it seems like they would have moved right away to formalize the canon and you wouldn't have this situation of waiting around for a couple of hundred years and then being instigated by heresies and all that. But we need to get on the, to the third one, because I know we're going to well, be going along. But the third one, though, it, it brings up an, an important consideration, that you know what, what was formally decided a half a century before the canon of the New Testament? The Nicene Creed. The creed is older than the canon, Right. Um, which is what, this brings us to our third yeah. point about the creed. You know what, I didn't even think about that, but that's actually kind of a, that's a profound point. The third observation then that I made at the time 
and that led me to think that sola scriptura could not have been the faith of the early church was this. The observation that the earliest Christian creeds don't say anything about the Bible. Now, let me fill that out because that may not seem to carry a lot of weight. And again, I don't, I don't offer this as proving anything, but I offer it as evidence of a mindset. And this is coming from the Protestant world that I was a part of. I was familiar with the various creeds and confessions of faith that had come out of the, the Reformation in the 16th century. And I was familiar with the fact that most all of them either begin with a very strong statement of commitment to sola scriptura, or they get to it really quickly at some point. Okay, For instance, the 1576 formula of Concord for the Lutheran churches in Germany, listen, listen to how it begins. We believe, confess, and teach that the only rule and norm according to which all dogmas and all doctors ought to be esteemed and judged is no other whatever than the prophetic and apostolic writings, both of the Old and New Testaments. Now, this is essentially true of the 1561 Belgic Confession. It's true of the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith for the Presbyterian churches. And it's true of the 1689 Baptist Confession. All and of them begin true. with these kinds of statements. It's true of almost any church website that you can go to today, even if they were founded on Thursday. That's right. And, and the thing is, all of this makes perfect sense. After all, the Reformation was all about rejecting the authority of tradition, rejecting the authority of the Catholic Church, and standing, at least purportedly standing, upon the foundation of Scripture alone. So it, it makes sense that all of these creeds would begin in the way that they do. But then when I looked at the earliest creeds of the Church, I found it curious, <laughs> at minimum, that n nothing is said about Scripture. And it wasn't merely what the creeds didn't say, Matt, that kind of threw me for a loop. It was what they did say. It was what they said. For instance, let's go back to the Apostles' Creed, the earliest one that we have. While the Apostles' Creed contains no article about the Bible or Scripture or Sola Scriptura or anything like that, it does contain more than one article on the Church. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. I, I didn't even believe in the communion of saints. I didn't even know what that was, really. But think about it. The earliest creed, the Apostles' Creed, contains these words, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. So the, the Holy Catholic Church is listed as an article of faith. It's something that we believe in. And I, I don't think that it's just um, a coincidence that it's tied together with the Holy Spirit there. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. So, you know, the point being, this is a church that was practicing sola scriptura. This is a church that, that was standing upon the foundation of the Bible alone is all that is necessary for faith and practice. It sounds and more like a church that understands itself to be the pillar and bulwark of truth. Yeah, that great passage from 1 Timothy. Yes, it sounds like that. And, and it's the same with the Nicene Creed that you referred to from 325. This is the creed that we Catholics recite every Sunday at Mass. This is the creed that came out of the first, the very first ecumenical council of Christian history, 325 AD. Yeah, as you mentioned, some decades before the canon. 300 was, years of silence, right? And half yeah. a century before the, the canon of the New Testament. Yeah, it's 325 AD. And again, you read the Nicene Creed, and it contains not a single word about Scripture. 
And it contains, at the same time, it contains an even more elaborated article on the church. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, given my worldview as a Protestant, it would have been hard for me to have write, to write a statement of faith for my church, as you mentioned, or a creed or a confession of any kind that would not have begun, or as I said, gotten to it very quickly, some strong, strong statement on the inspiration and authority and sole authority of Scripture. After all, this was our foundation, right? I mean, this was the foundation. But here I am reading the most ancient creeds of the church, that is, of the real church, the church that existed, and I'm finding Christians described not as those who believe in the Bible or believe in the Bible alone, but as those who believe in the church. And other things like one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, <laughs> right? And some other some other stuff that yeah. I just kind of would have just yeah. shoved off to the side in my particular tradition, yes. Very hard for me to conceive that the church that composed these words, these creeds, was a church committed to Bible-only Christianity. But it was also not a church that was ignoring the Scriptures, because if you read through the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, yeah. they, they are affirming what is taught in the Scriptures. It's, it's the same thing yeah. that happened with the Bereans, right? The Bereans studied the Old Testament to make sure that the God that spoke to Isaiah and Jeremiah was speaking to Paul. If you read the creeds, it's clear that the people who are writing these creeds are talking about the same God that Paul is preaching about. You know, it's just yeah, as clear. Exactly. And as we go into looking at the early church fathers next week, we're going to see very, very strong statement on Scripture, its inspiration, its authority, all of that. Well, the, the, the thing is, the mindset of whoever wrote these creeds, and we, and we know who did, I mean, at least the Nicene Creed, the mindset was not a mindset that fit with Sola Scriptura. It was hard for me to believe that those who wrote those creeds were practicing Sola Scriptura. And on the other hand, it was easy to see how consistent this was with the Catholic conception, where the emphasis is not on the Bible alone, but the emphasis is on the teaching of the apostles, on the deposit of faith, the doctrine of the apostles being preserved, again, by the Holy Spirit within the church and passed down within that same church by the successors to the apostles. The mindset, in other words, evidenced by these early creeds, the mindset that would allow them to wait as long as they did to determine the canon formally, the mindset that would allow them to write creeds that didn't say anything about the Bible, it was a mindset that was much more Catholic, I could see, than it was Protestant. Yeah, and and, and I saw the same thing. And again, when you are, like I was, a good evangelical kid, you know, going to Bible college, you know, singing in rock and roll bands and, you know, telling people mm -hmm. they ought to get saved and and all these things, and then you, you see the crack in the foundation there of Sola Scriptura, your first instinct can often be, well, maybe Christianity is a lie. But, <laughs> you know, that's what it, yeah, what it was for yeah. me. And I see, it seems like every day there's a new deconversion story from somebody out there who was raised in the Sola Scriptura worldview, and when their foundation cracked, they decided, well, maybe Christianity in general is not true. But if you look yeah. at what the, how the early church operated, and if you really understand what was, what the apostolic intent was, and the that that key thing you said there at the end, it was not a book per se that alone that was being passed on. It was something that we refer to as the deposit of faith. Um, and said that yeah. again, 
if you start to understand it that way, then mm-hmm. it doesn't rest on whether one book was compiled by the Catholic Church or dropped out of the sky or whatever. You're not stuck with that particular, all, not just the the false security of it, but also the easy pickings that you are when you believe in Sola Scriptura. I mean, it's so easy to pick Sola Scriptura apart that an atheist can break your faith in an internet debate if you're not careful. Yeah, and just on a practical level, you know, we just look around and see all the disagreements and whatnot. It's it's easy to sort of see it, just to watch it unravel. In fact, we're going to see some of that when we come to the Reformation. We're going to see it um, happening right before our eyes. But, um, you know, let me just close with this, Matt, that, that I'm talking about evidences of a mindset more than I am proofs, that's for sure. And I'm just saying that before I began to read the, the, the early fathers and really dig into what they had to say, and this is going to be powerful, and this is going to begin next week. We're, we're going to look, look at this. I already had these ideas or had made these observations that, that made me think, hmm, it, it, it doesn't seem that the early church could have been a church practicing sola scriptura. Number one, there's nothing in the New Testament that would make me think it's going to be from the apostles. Number two, they wait all this time to formally define the canon. Doesn't make sense. And number three, when they go about writing creeds and symbols of the faith to summarize the faith, they don't talk about the Bible. Instead, they talk about the church, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And even making the church an article of faith, which was something really disorienting to my Protestant mind. But anyway, the strongest evidence of all that Sola Scriptura was not the faith and practice of the early church came from reading the early church fathers. And this is where we've got to go right away, starting next week. So there's your cliffhanger. Next time on On the Journey. Uh, Ken, it's always a pleasure. We always cover a lot of ground, and unfortunately, we have a limited amount of time in which to do so. But if you like what you're hearing, or if you have questions, or if you had similar observations, or if you have issue that you want to take with anything, that especially Ken said, because everything I said was fine, I think, um, then definitely <laughs> come subscribe to our channel. Uh, hit us with a note at chnetwork.org. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you, the Coming Home Network. Um, is an apostolate that is very pastoral, we hope, in our approach. So come visit us at chnetwork.org. Have a great week. Ken, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, we'll see you later.